is Our American Stories. And from time to time, we like to deal with some tragic things that happen in life. It's not all daisies and rainbows living a life. And here in Our American Stories, we don't avoid the tragic. And sometimes we actually think uh, by telling these stories, we're making other people who experience the same thing feel less alone. And if you can do that in life, I think it was one of the greatest things a man ever said about another man when the great playwright Arthur Miller eulogized Tennessee Williams. He said, Tennessee made us feel all less alone. And you couldn't say something more beautiful about a person, I think, than that. And the next two stories you're going to hear, one a new one and one an old one, are about infant loss. And that sudden infant death syndrome, that's miscarriages. It happens, and it happens all the time. And so many women who go through this, and their husbands, and men, uh, feel like it's a... It's one of those things that not enough people really understand the depths of grief that come from this. And so we wanted to first start with a story that we bumped into on Good Morning America about a not-too-regular lady going through an all-too-regular tragedy and how she's gotten through it all. And we just had to bring you this story. Let's take a listen. We are back now with Hillary Scott, lead singer of Lady Antebellum, now revealing the heartbreaking inspiration behind her powerful new music. Take a look. On stage, Hillary Scott sings passionately about love, loss, and healing as one-third of the hit country trio Lady Antebellum. But behind the scenes, she's been struggling with her own personal heartbreak. Last fall, I went through a miscarriage. Goodness gracious. Thank you. Now speaking out for the first time about it. This is something that is still not talked about very often. I also feel like there's this pressure that you're just supposed to be able to snap your fingers and and continue to, to walk through life like it never happened. Scott now channeling her pain through music, recording an album of hymns with her family, Love Remains, out July 29th, including the first single, Thy Will. I wrote the song in the middle of experiencing everything that comes with a miscarriage, so it was at my most raw place that I could have ever been when this song truly poured out of me. She says she's approaching life with a new perspective, relishing in special moments with her two-year-old daughter. I'm a different mom to her now. I hug her a lot tighter. For now, Scott's glad to be making music again, back on the road touring the summer with Lady Antebellum. After going through everything that I've gone through in the past year, but also just the process of making this record, I know I'm coming back into the mindset of Lady Nobellum. And you could hear it in her voice, and it's so true. If she had lost a 14-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 6-year-old, people would have treated her a lot differently. And I've had that experience myself with a really dear friend who lost not one but two babies to miscarriage. And she had names for those babies. She had decorated rooms for those babies. And she grieved for those babies because they were her babies. And yet people, I I watched it. I watched people act as if this was something she was going to get over really fast. By the way, October 
is Infant Loss Month. And Ronald Reagan signed that piece of legislation. And it's been so ever since. And now and then, we tell these stories, share these stories, have folks share their stories with us. Our number is 844-627-8255. Leave your story there. We have about five minutes worth of space for you to leave a story about an infant loss. We wanted to share one that we did last October, back when we were doing Infant Loss Month. And this from a man's point of view, because men suffer too. The men name their babies along with their wives. And this is Paul Smythe's story. Jonathan Paul was born at 4.03 a.m. on February 3rd, 2015 in his sack. The doctor said it was an extremely rare occurrence. You can see his little hands and his little feet in the sack, and it was one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Jonathan Paul was 10 and a half inches long and weighed 12 ounces. He was perfect in every way. He had my exact feet and my wife Amanda's hands. He looked just like me, just a lot smaller. We had 32 hours with him in the room with us, 32 hours of hanging out with him, 32 hours of reading I'll Love You Forever, 32 hours of conversations, 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of holding him, 32 hours to say goodbye. Saying goodbye was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do. Handing him over to the funeral director just about killed me. Why, at the age of 28, do we need to make plans for our son's funeral? No parents should have to plan their child's funeral. And the same grief. Country music star, ordinary citizen. We're all the same when this kind of thing happens. Jonathan Paul was his son. Paul Smythe said he was perfect in every way. He looked just like me, just a little smaller. 32 hours of memories, 32 hours of saying goodbye. And here in Our American Stories, we love to make you laugh, cry, or think. It's the motto here inside our studio, because it's what Jimmy Valvano said, the great coach from North Carolina when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, got up in front of the world and said, I'm the luckiest man alive because my dad taught me if you can think once a day, if you can be brought to tears once a day, that is to cry, and you could laugh once a day, and you could do that every day, you would have lived a rich life. So if you know someone in your life who suffered from a miscarriage, give them an extra hug today and pray for them and pray for their baby. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell. And you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago. Uh, You've moved from Brooklyn (laughs) to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually consider that deep dish stuff pizza, but that's another thing. That's maybe another show. How how are things... I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh, yeah. With all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh, no, no, Um, no doubt. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, hey, look, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans (laughs) move a lot, and we are probably, as a people— the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think. I wonder Finns, if that's true. That I, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why can't move we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? It's meta ADHD. <laughs> I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president. And his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big ears. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld ear. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. This is on the list, and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all, like, slightly pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show yeah that's true you know one day i'll never forget this i was at an airport at jfk our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who'd not seen each other in a while and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting and it was fascinating well what we started fixating on was ears and i don't know why but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird looking ears they are weird looking and if you think as we're talking if you touch the top of your ear i'm not in front of a mirror but i have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top and they have it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something they have all these little ridges at the top so i had asked the doctor about that um and he just said you know basically you you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face you would hear totally different well because you're just used everyone has their own um way of hearing and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face which i'm sure there's been ear transplants done and maybe it was really weird so to, so so the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse well they we it doesn't really it's not quite like that it's more like you're you're only born with one pair and so that's just how you hear and so it's not it's already optimized for you for everyone you get used to it so so he was saying if you know if you had this ear transplant you would it would just be super weird and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um sound signature that we hear so if i took your ears your huge i'm sure ears and slapped them onto my tiny head um <clears throat> it would be weird because i'm just used to what i've got Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. And, <laughs> and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. 
Tell us about oh Dr. Rickett. This is the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing, um, creating these hearing aids. And so he's at Vanderbilt University. And he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scrolled, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis <laughs> at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. To, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they're, they don't need to hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is, you see, is what you see on the outside of your head. And that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn. And it's sort, it points slightly forward if you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward. And so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's, sort, it's called shadowing. And so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more, you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing, um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. And then, and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the, the sound down, and it acts as an amplifier. But it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilance and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. 
Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> Although I'm sure, I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, have, you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that you'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some of those little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're, you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, That'd be a really... No, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, That'd yeah, be really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, it's uh, it's you can't see us. <laughs> uh, so that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing. Doctor Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can. What you're doing is you're most of us like you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh huh. <laughs> he had it's totally gross, and he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. He pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American Stories. <laughs> Watch out with the Q-tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. And we'll keep talking about Chicago. And, hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been. This is Lee Habib, and now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment. We do this each week with our marriage ambassador, Deb Wolniak, the executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a group whose innovative couple-to-couple mentoring program has an 87% success rate in saving struggling marriages, compared to 28% with traditional counseling. Every week, Deb will join us for storytelling about marriage and we'll take calls on marriage. If you have any questions about your marriage, need advice for a friend going through something tough, 
or have a nugget of wisdom on how to have a long and happy marriage. And boy, anybody who's married wants to hear that. 877-655-6755 is our number. Last week, we talked about a young couple who overcame drug addictions and physical abuse with the support of their family and their newfound faith, and now have a healthy marriage. You can hear it on our website at ouramericannetwork.org. Today, we tell the story of a husband who was physically rescued in World War II, but was truly rescued in a much deeper sense by his bride. He's now 94 years old, and you're about to hear him trying to rescue his wife in her time of need. The story is brought to us by the Wall Street Journal and their contributor, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, who saw this story happen right before his eyes. When his wife's scream from the next room awakened him, Ford Callis leaped bolt upright out of bed. Then he fell, his left eye smashing the edge of the bedstand. As he hit the ground, the air gushed out of his lungs. Mr. Callis, who is 94, listened intently to the noise monitor in the dark for any clues from his demented wife, Daisy, in the next room. He could hear his own heart throbbing, he would later tell me, but nothing more. He tried unsuccessfully to crawl to her. The bleeding laceration on his eye and his new shoulder and chest injuries reminded him of the time 60 years ago that he'd been injured and trapped in a foxhole in the French Alps. A member of the famed World War II Lost Battalion. Rescue came then and it would come now since the morning phone call from his daughter had gone unanswered as he lay stranded on the floor hours later peering at the sunrise through the window. Later that day, Mr. Callis ended up on our ICU service. Lying helplessly on the floor after his fall, he had developed enough muscle breakdown on what he called the death crawl toward his wife that his kidneys shut down from toxic injury. He also developed a bleeding stress ulcer and a new blood clot in his left leg, all of which made for complicated medical circumstances that nearly ended his life. Yet Mr. Callis kept asking only, when can I return home to care for Daisy? She's waiting for me in Ridgetop. In the rustic house in Tennessee, she bought 71 years ago with savings from her job as a riveter making planes during the war. In the hospital, our team of white coats swooped in to save Mr. Callis. Yet we later learned from what he told us that his real rescue, the one that mattered most, had occurred on a much higher plane through a sacramental promise made many decades earlier. The story began before he became a soldier, when he was 20, and he and Daisy had married. Shortly thereafter, he went through military training and shipped off to Naples, Italy, with the 36th Infantry. The company made its way to the Vosges Mountains in France, where the Germans surrounded them and began starving them out. Following failed rescue attempts by two other battalions of the 36th Infantry, they became known as the Lost Battalion. After eight days without food and water, and stuck in foxholes, drinking from a pond, and eating worms, they were liberated by the 442nd Regiment of the Nisai Japanese-Americans. And now, decades later, 
Mr. Callis was determined to rescue Daisy. Sporting a black eye, but smiling from his ICU bed, he said, Doctor, I need you to get me home to my wife as soon as possible. His dutiful daughter stopped staring at the blood dripping in his IV and said, Yep, that's his main mission in life, and he refuses to fail. Through marriage, it became clear Mr. Callis had undergone the type of indelible change in a soul that no personal injury or earthly event can undo. Having someone believe in me and waiting for me back home, that is what gives me purpose. I am more than myself because of our marriage, he said, expressing his hope that people not give up on marriage even when the sparks of romance seem distant. All this brought to mind the words of the German Lutheran pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he wrote from a Nazi prison to his niece before her wedding. Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you're placed in a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status, an office. The story of Ford and Daisy generated lots of discussion on hospital rounds that day. Theirs was not a tale of military or medical rescue, as exciting and perhaps technically interesting as those were. It was one of marital rescue. This covenant had liberated their souls and given them a higher purpose. Each of us that day, married or not, caught a glimpse of where our true north lies and a reminder of when we are at our best in serving one another. Mr. Callis eventually regained color and strength and on the morning of his hospital discharge he once more explained, you know it takes three people to stay married Daisy, me and God. This is not just a civil agreement we are one. It was a beautiful echo another line in Bonhoeffer's letter to his niece. It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Great work on that, Greg. Great work on that, Alex, and Deb's team as well. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Deb about marriage, about keeping our marriages together. 877 55. It was remarkable that Bonhoeffer, quote, it's a status, it's an office. And if we can do anything here on this show, it's to bring back the status and the office of marriage and the beauty of it and how it can save civilization. There's no disrespect to the politicians, but if we can shore up our marriages in this country, we can shore up our country. And I would wish that at some point in time, Some of these candidates would talk about that as a way to solve our economic and our social problems in this country. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You can hear all of our material on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, when we come back, we're going to be talking to one of the best people in this country at coaching people, not counseling, coaching people through their marriages, good times, bad times, and everything in between. Deb Walniak, the Executive Director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County, 
will join us right after these words. Men tree, try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by mother, you can't have one, you can't have none, you can't have one without the This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is our Marriage on the Mind half hour that we do every week with the aforementioned Deb Wolniak. Deb, thanks so much for joining us again. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to speak with you again. You bet. You know, Deb, you, you heard this great story. And just a takeaway from you before we dig into to this week's material. Mm-hmm. What, are you, you what, know, what are some thoughts? Yeah, I am so impressed with this man's dedication to his wife. You can see it um, not only in his young life and their young married life, but his commitment to his battalion and so much of the military is leave no man behind. And you can tell this guy was a fighter from the beginning, and he carried that right through to his marriage and really honoring his wife by self-sacrifice, even when, you, if you heard the story correctly, she didn't even probably even realize what was going on because of her illness. But he was ready to sacrifice himself even at that point to make sure she was okay And what's so neat is all the doctors and the staff really noticed that commitment of him wanting to get back to his wife, even though his physical ailments had prevented him from doing so for a short time. So I'm, I mean, I would love to meet this man and this woman. I'm sure they have just an amazing story, an amazing life. And I hope that we can all attain to that level of commitment. You bet. And, you know, we were we were talking earlier and you sort of summarized some of today's material is sort of battles. I mean, this guy, he faced real battles, saw life in the end, I think, is a battlefield and commitment is the only solution to that. And I believe our challenges today, you told me, lie in three areas. And the first you told me was a change in priorities. Talk about that. Yeah, so the priorities sometimes today are a little bit different pressures and a little little bit different today than they were even 20 years ago. Um, the marriages and the priorities that maybe our parents had um, are different than today. And we, as the younger generation, are seeing a lot of people really try to make sure their career is in line and that they're financially providing for their families. Um, some so much so with double income um, that they really start to lose track of some of the core family bonds that they need, including that marriage. If you don't take care of your marriage, that is going to really affect not only your communication levels, your trust levels, but it's going to start affecting your kids because they're watching you. And you know what? If you're not around, 
They're watching someone else, and it's not always a committed marriage. And so that is not to take away anything from those that have children either in daycare or supported by a mother or father or a relative in their family. That is what we need today sometimes to make ends meet. I totally get it. But there also has to be some time carved out for each other to nurture that relationship. If you don't nurture it, it's just like the plant on the shelf. It's not getting the water and sunlight it needs, and eventually it starts wilting and fading away. And we don't ever, ever want to see somebody all of a sudden wake up one morning and go, wait a minute, where did it go? I thought I had a marriage here, and it's gone. Um, And how do I rebuild that? So the point on the front end is make sure your priorities are in line, and that will actually help keep that time carved out for each other and keep nurturing each other. So that's the first point. Well, you also talk about change in communication processes as well. Talk about that, Deb. Well, isn't it interesting how we are such an electronic age and all the things that were created to help us improve our communication sometimes starts hindering it. We're very much in the midst of, you know, six to eight word sentences, little sound bites on our phones, texting, I'll see you at home, bye. And it's missing a huge part of some of that face-to-face contact, that eye-to-eye contact, and even some of that pieces that say, I love you. And I was talking with a, a corporate class just the other month, and I looked at these folks, and they're out on the manufacturing floor, and some of them are executives, and I said, when was the last time you actually looked at your spouse in the eye for more than three seconds? And they started laughing. Because they're like, you know, I don't really do that much. But if you, I'm going to challenge our listeners to do this. If you tonight, when you get home or maybe you're at home now, take your spouse's hand and look at him in the eye and tell them about something that happened today, it would be awesome. Now, don't break eye contact because I know the first thing you're going to want to do is look away. But if you talk to them personally about something that happened today that maybe meant a lot to you or maybe was something that was hurtful, to share that moment with your spouse is so precious because then they, in turn, can give feedback. Honey, I'm sorry that happened to you today. That must have felt so frustrating. And then the other person can say, yeah, that was frustrating. You know, thank you for affirming that. Now, that sounds like such a simple conversation, but because it doesn't always happen, we miss it, and then we forget how to talk. So communication is one of the biggest ways we can not only nurture but build trust in that relationship. And we need that really bad today. You know, and you did something interesting because when people say, oh, communicate better, that just doesn't mean anything. And giving examples of how to communicate, giving exercises about how to communicate and challenging people to then go ahead and perform that exercise and sort of make it in the habit of being. And ultimately, I would, I would assume this is what you try and do as a coach day to day, Deb. Yeah, and it's exciting to see how couples respond to that. At first, it feels really uncomfortable, like, oh, my gosh, this is so funny, and I'm going to laugh. I'm just laughing (laughs) because it's so new and fresh. But then they start getting into it, and they just love it. They almost forget that, you know, the coach or the mentoring team is right there. And then they, you know, come out of that moment, and they're like, wow, that actually was really nice. We need to do more of that. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's all, you know what it also is, though, uh, Deb, in the end, it's a very private admission that in the most important relationship in your life, that it's uh, it's failing, and it stinks. And and simply asking that question, that uncomfortable, that had that laugh had to be the source of it, an uncomfortable laugh. Yeah. What do you think yeah. about that? 
Yeah. Well, it's funny. I'm going to tell you a cute story. My husband and I went and got um, um, anniversary pictures taken a couple years ago. And again, hey, I can raise my hand. I get busy in life, too. And and the photographer was so sweet. She said, okay, now now take hands. And and Bob, I want you to look at Deb. And I just, I want you to tell her um, about what you really thought about her the first time you saw her. And so funny because we both started busting up. I already knew the answer. I just wanted to hear him say it. You know, yeah. oh, she was so good looking. You know, so that was just <laughs> very sweet. No good affirmation, I suppose. But it, it just brings you back down memory lane. And when you go back to the original pieces of what attracted you to each other, that can be electric. You know what I mean? It's one of those like, oh yeah, that's right. That's why we got together in the first place. Gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> you know, yep, yep, so yep. you know it's interesting. It's just a segue here. We had done last week uh, an hour on Johnny Carson. And, oh. you know, there was humor, there was joy. But there was one particular segment where Johnny was asked by Barbara Walters. This was the last interview he ever did. And she had mm-hmm. said, what was your greatest regret? And you could see him. And he had basically confessed that he had never gotten the most important relationship in his life right. And he had failed four times, but the pain of the first one. And here's what he had admitted. Not only this was a great failure, and you could see it. I mean, this was not a guy who was kidding around. I think he was actually trying to tell the world something. Hey, mate, you know what? I had a lot of success, but I'm going to die alone. And I had no real lasting love in my life. And it was, it was a wound to him. But he talked about going to psychiatrists to solve his problem. Mm-hmm. And you do something very different. You coach. What's that difference between that psychiatric community and the kind of help that Johnny was looking for and never got, as opposed to the kind of coaching you do and the mentoring that couples do with the couples you assign them to or coach them? Yeah, and so I'm going to give a lot of credit to not only our mentoring couples, but also the program Prepare and Enrich. If you've listened to a couple of our segments, we've mentioned this before, but Prepare and Enrich is an organization that actually helps couples do kind of that analysis of what is your strengths and your weakness areas or your challenge areas. And once you've identified what those are, our mentor couples can come in and we can come in and talk a little bit and dig a little further into, okay, well, not only what does that mean, but what are some of the pieces or the tools or the new habits that we can start to create to bring that back around to a more nurturing uh, situation. And, and one of them is on uh, communication. Another one might be on conflict, character, financial, maybe just some of the fun and intimacy that may have been lost for a while. We want to bring that back. Um, really family relationships or expectations for things. And spirituality for some of those of faith and even parenting. I mean, parenting is a huge one, too. If you're on opposite pages in those areas, how do you come to a good solution? And that's what our mentor couples bring back around. We focus on those challenge areas, build those back up, and people see that glimmer of hope. They see that hope, and they say, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize that you thought that. That's so cool. Now we're on the same page. Let's go tackle this problem together with the new uh, pieces of advice that we have to go do that. And that's where it gets super exciting because in some of our surveys that come back, we see some of those responses where they say, wow, we're going out on a date more. 
We're talking more. We actually like each other. That is so crazy. Even though yep. we were practically going to a divorce court. And that's that's a tough thing to, for people to hear that don't know about the fact that this exists. Because they're like, oh my gosh, if that exists, then what am I doing? You know what I mean? You so, bet. You bet. It's important. Well, Deb, important. this is always good. Hopefully anybody with an earshot who is near a computer can learn more about Deb's organization. Great slash marriages.org great slash marriages.org and Deb Wolniak is the executive director of great marriages for Sheboygan County and she is our in-house coach our in-house marriage coach and guys that's all of us too gals everyone listening can always make the marriage better and stronger this is Lee Habib thanks so much for joining us Deb This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You know we love talking about Shark Tank and free enterprise, people pitching their business, their ideas. There's nothing more American than that show, and the whole idea of trying to build something. Maybe make a living, maybe not, but just step out on your own, run your own shop, do your own thing. We're going to be talking to a fellow who was on Shark Tank, and well, well, I'm not going to tell you anymore, because first... As we do every day, I figured we'd start the show with Jesse's World. The Hallmark Channel has wrapped up filming the third annual Kitten Bowl that will air the same time as Super Bowl 50 on February 7th. NFL Pro Bowler Boomer Esiason, who serves as the Feline Football League FFL Commissioner, had some advice for the kittens. I need you to go out there, play with cuteness and cuddliness. I want you to be as furry as you possibly can. I want to hear a lot of meows. I want to see a lot of touchdowns. I want to see a lot of climbing. There's a relatively new breed of werewolf cats that can cost up to $2,500. They're called Lycoi cats, and they possess a natural mutation that gives them the appearance of a scruffy-looking little wolf. But they don't just look like little werewolves. They're also said to act like dogs also. Because of a naturally occurring mutation found in black domestic shorthairs, Lycoi cats have no hair around the eyes, nose, ears, and muzzle and go through periods of patchy hair throughout their lives. I'm going to be sick! The mutation prevents the cat from developing an undercoat and growing a full coat of hair. Researchers from the University of Edinburgh teamed up with the Bronx Zoo and found that your cat may actually want to kill you. They compared the personalities of domestic house cats to those of different types of wild cats in order to better understand cat personalities. According to the research, domestic house cats and African lions have have similar personality structures. Both have strong characteristics related to dominance, impulsiveness, and neuroticism. If you ever thought your cat was anxious, insecure, tense, suspicious, or aggressive, you're not making it up. If they were bigger, your cat would probably try to kill you. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Well done, Jesse. Yeah. Wow, a cat that had traits of dominance, impulsiveness, and neuroticism. That was my college girlfriend. (laughs) Mine too, I think. Oh, good stuff. And by the way, it's... uh, 
It's National Cat Day, and we'll get into that a little later. But right now, we're joined by, well, someone who was on Shark Tank recently, and he's the founder and CEO of Frameary, the first interchangeable glasses and sunglasses brand. He grew up in Idaho. He now lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and his name is Conrad Billets. Conrad, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for inviting me on. appreciate it. You, you betcha. Hey, you know, we wanted to just play a quick clip, you know, to bring you back in that space. Oh, oh I you're going to bring it back? Oh, I hate get, going to the past. I All am right, let's so do it. sorry. I'm ready. Just I'm for ready. a second. I'm ready. You know, unfortunately, I don't think it's an offer that we can take at this time. You're dead to me. Mr. Wonderful said you're dead to me. Tell oh, me how that felt. Oh, it felt so good. Oh, it felt so good. Yeah, and you were, out of, so you were out of the tank and free at last, right? Free at last, man. That's, that's a pretty stressful situation. It is. Well, you know, that's uh, that's the life as a big-time television star. Hey, Conrad, I want to talk a little bit about your life. Uh, let's talk about something much more existential. You know, let's talk yeah. about, first, your decision to start your own business, because this we love talking about on this show. You know, you're a young guy. Some guys want to go to Europe, backpack, find themselves. Others want to maybe you know build a car and, and drive off and chase girls, join a band, just you know, get a law degree, practice law, be a welder. Not a lot of young people, well, not a lot of young people want to say, hey, I want to start a company. What, what was your inspiration, Conrad, to do that? You know, I think there's so many things that really go into what inspires you to start something. Um, but for me, a lot of it was I was very in, I worked in door to door sales for uh, th- about three years. Um, and I learned a ton there. But you know, the, the CEO of that company just really inspired me on how he ran the company and the level of respect he gave to all of his employees and everything. And I kind of wanted it for that reason. I was like, you know, I really want to start something that's cool and people can, you know, be happy to go to work to do. And I just thought, you know, it was worth a shot. You know, we, uh, we know and have spoken with Ken Langone. He's one of the co-founders of Home Depot. And he was telling us about a speech he had recently given at a college where he was telling these kids, hey, you want to make a difference in the world? Yeah, you can join the Peace Corps. Yeah, you can march on the streets. But let me tell you what you could really do. Start a business and employ someone. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I will. one of the biggest moments of me actually feeling like I had a business is the first time that you run payroll. You know, it's like, for me my whole purpose really changed the second that that happened. And it became this thing that was, wow, we can use this tool or this idea and all come together and really create something great. And it having it, it also on the, on the flip side of it, it's like a huge responsibility um, that I think a lot of founders take very personally. So while it's also one of the coolest things, it's also probably one of the things that stresses you out the most. You so. bet. And, and you know what? I think it takes something. You know, and then you're, this is a crazy segue, and we're going to be holding you over till the next segment. But we had done a segment on Henry Kissinger, and there's a great new book out on him called The Idealist. And Neil Ferguson, the great Harvard and Stanford scholar, had noted that in 1958, Kissinger had written about how America was always trying to counter communism by saying capitalism is a superior economic system. But he said, we're wrong. We got to talk about this on the way we do business here in America as a spiritual system, as a system of freedom, of choice, of the ability for people to do what they want and where they want. And that's a revolution. 
the ability of the individual human being to pursue their interest as they see fit. Conrad, we're going to hold you over, talk about that, and so much more, and a little bit more about, I know, that experience at Shark Tank. This is Lee Habib. You bet. This is Lee Habib, joined by Conrad Billets, co-founder founder and CEO of Framery. This is Our American Stories. We'll be back right after this. This is Lee Habib. We're on with Conrad Billets, co-founder and CEO of Framery. He does not sell cheap sunglasses. Good, affordable sunglasses, but not cheap sunglasses. Conrad, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. You bet. Hey, tell a little bit about your dad before we get into Shark Tank. Talk about the influence uh, of your dad. Where, where is he from? Where were you from? Where did you grow up? Just a little bit about your, your uh, youth. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my dad was actually, he was the son of a coal miner um, in Pennsylvania um, when he grew up and, you know, went played college football at West Virginia and then uh, ended up, you know, becoming a football coach at a small college and then ended up being a teacher and I met my mom in the process and somehow we ended up in a beautiful part of northern Idaho, uh, Coeur d'Alene, Post Falls area. So, beautiful country, beautiful country. Very, very beautiful. Very, very blessed to be able to be from that that area of the country. Um, you know, grew up in the mountains, so got to spend a lot of time outdoors, and that's sort of you know where uh, where it all started, I guess. And now, what leads to the the sunglass company that gets you to Shark Tank? Get us there. Sure. Yeah, I mean it's it's a process, but I can kind of tell you where I uh, really started to get frustrated in eyewear and when I started wearing glasses. Um, when I was 11 years old, my best friend accidentally shot me in the eye with a BB gun. Um, I lived in the mountains, like I said. So yep. I accidentally got shot in the eye with a BB gun and um, was actually supposed to be blind in my left eye. Uh, luckily, I'm not, but uh, my left eye is very, very – immediately the vision just started to get really, really bad. And What tends to happen with your eyes is they kind of chase each other. As one eye gets bad, the other one starts to get bad. So my vision was just changing so much, and I'd always had to either wear glasses or corrective lenses. And as I got older, glasses were just a little bit better for me. And I would always do this thing where I'd put my sunglasses over my prescription glasses and was just like, this makes no sense. Why can't I just snap my lenses out and snap them into another frame? Somebody has to do this for prescription eyewear. So I, I went online and I was like, all right, I'm going to buy these glasses. Let me find a company that does it. And 
I could not find a company that did it. And that was sort of, I guess, when the, you know, the light bulb goes off and you're like, I don't know anything about eyewear, but I think I'm about to know a lot about eyewear and just sort of took the plunge. And what that means, what the heck. And so you land on Shark Tank after this or that. And uh, what happens on the set of Shark Tank? Uh, tell us a little about Mr. Wonderful and also, of course, your experience with Damon saying you guys were just there for the attention and never really wanted the deal that you turned down. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it was it's a, it was it's such a cool experience to be a part of that, as kind of scary as it is. And we, you know, we had... Because, you know, when we had started our company, we were like very early stages. Um, they had reached out to us and said, you know, you guys might, you guys would be great to be on this show. And so we're like, okay, cool. That sounds cool for like where we were. It was like day one. And then we filmed it about six months later because it takes, you know, it takes a process and you got to go through all of that. And by that time, we had actually made quite a bit of progress. And, you know, we had had uh, about 70000 in pre-orders, I think $70,000 in pre-orders. And so we had attracted some early stage investments and had a valuation and then aired on or filmed the show. And then it takes a year to air it. So, you know, you see them a year later than where the company is at that day. But we had just made progress in that application process to have, you know, kind of the valuation that we did at the time. Um, so we went on there a hundred percent wanting to make a deal. Um, you know, we would have loved nothing more than to find somebody, especially, I mean, there's so many talented people there that we respect a lot. Yep. Like Lori would have been great. Um, Damon would have been great. Unfortunately, you know, it just doesn't work out sometimes. And it, everything is, you know, everything's a timing deal and how you pitch it. We could have been off the way we pitched it. Obviously it's nerve wracking to be where you are. So you're, second guessing your answers and sometimes and but you know overall it was it was a really fun experience and it's cool to to say you're sort of like one of those alumni i guess you know yeah you bet and you've gotten some interest from some pretty interesting uh investors really quickly uh, you know talk about that if you could yeah so a month after we filmed it uh, about 11 months before it aired um we were we we're doing pitch competitions and meeting with investors and things like that. And actually one, uh, one from Steve case, the founder of AOL. So we won the rise of the rest for, for Cincinnati, um, this pitch competition, there's a ton of great companies in it. So we won an investment from their, their, you know, their venture arm. Um, and then we've been able to bring on really awesome angel investors, uh, that have a lot of respect in the investment industry. And it's just been something that's been, uh, you know, cool for us. I mean, those, well, are the, those are the people that really help you grow your company, you know. Well, this is, this is a great story. And we love particularly that we like to call them the young, the young hipsters because I'm finding that the hipsters, oh, oh, I no. know, I know we hate I, this word. I, I, and and no, by the I way, when the, hip- I love the segments on the hipsters, by the well, way. Well, you know, so here's I'm the thing ready. that I love about it. I love hipsters because once they're called hipsters, they don't want to be hipsters anymore. I mean, well, you the, can't, near- no, it disappears. The title disappears. This is, right. you know, I can't, I'm never allowed to admit it because the second I do, I'm no longer it. It's so over. It's, it's over. Yes, yeah, you're done. 
What do you, you have no reason. Like, what's That's the purpose right. now? You know? What is your purpose? But you're trying to market to hipsters, I would assume. And what's that like? And I know you want to market to America, but hipsters set the trends. And just as in hip-hop, where you want to get certain people wearing the, your sneakers or the brand, you know, you get the hipsters to wear it, and then next thing you know, you know, old guys like me are wearing them. Well, I'm, I'm not going to lie. We have customers on the entire spectrum because for people that wear, like, progressive lenses, so it's so funny because, yeah, we have, like, the hipsters, and then we have, like, the people that actually need glasses. So <laughs> oh, them, the, people that are like, the people that are like, wait, I paid $800 for my last pair of progressives, and I can go to you guys and buy my lenses once for 250 bucks, and then all of your frames are, you know, 100 bucks. Like, that's such a great deal for them. So we have this, we have this crazy spectrum of customers. Well, that's great. Um, but, that's great. But, but we approach it, but we approach it, like you said, from a fashion standpoint. So everything's handmade in Italy and all that. So that's, that's I have fantastic. To, I have to throw it, you know, I have to pitch, I have to pitch it in there when I can. So hey, anytime you can. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the interesting thing though is that this, there's a generation that's really open, uh, especially this like libertarian sort of leave me alone, I'll leave you alone generation that, that is fiercely entrepreneurial. They don't want to go working for big companies. They hate the idea of big government only as much as they hate the idea of working for a big company. They just don't like big. And by the way, in your business, my goodness, I learned something fascinating. You want to talk about a company that's a monopoly. One company, Luxottica, is it? Is that yes. right? They, they make 65 million glasses a year. They own Oakley's, Ray-Ban. They make Prada, Chanel, Dolce & Gabbana, Versace, Burberry, Ralph Lauren, Tiffany, Coach. They make every glass imaginable. How are you competing against this giant? Well, they also own your eyewear insurance. So they own iMed. You also go to their stores. You go to Lens Crafters. You go to Pearl Vision. You go to Sunglass Hut. Um, and then you buy their eyewear, all the brands that you listed. So... One thing I can say is that's an impressive business. <laughs> you know, that is an impressive. Oh, it's vertical and horizontal. Not and only, Not only that, the guy that they just brought back on as the CEO still owns 50% of it. Wow. So that's crazy. Um, that is crazy. He's also the wealthiest, the wealthiest person in Italy. But besides that, it's, you know, the eyewear industry is huge. They're a big player, but there's about – three or four other players that are not super far behind. The, the issue in the past was the world was so big, so these supply chains were very difficult to set up. But now the world is so much smaller. You have the Internet. You can really find your target and your segment and get to them much easier than in the past. So I think this insurgence of a lot of independent brands, you know, independent, whether they be in eyewear or clothing, is totally empowered and the people that tend to go to those platforms, go to the internet and things like that and learn and try to set these things up using that just might tend to be those hipsters like you were talking about. You bet. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking to Conrad Billets, founder and CEO of Framary. And I think Conrad, we want to have you on more frequently just to talk to you. You're representing a generational shift. I love that you talked about how the world is made small. Tom Friedman said the world is flat. But you just corrected him. No, sir. The world is small. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We'll be back after this.
Indiana boys on an Indiana night. This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Tom Petty was born, and we're going to spend some time talking about his life. We're bumping in with this song, because I'm so proud as a dad to say this. I took my little girl on a daddy-daughter trip to Nashville. We do it every year. We walked into a honky-tonk. She's dancing with some women who were in a bachelorette party. And they're thinking about calling a song. My little girl goes up to the band, and it's a country band. They play some rock. And she whispers into the lead singer's ear. And the next thing you know, they're playing this song, My Little Girl's First Call to a Band in a Bar, Tom Petty's Last Dance with Mary Jane. Three-time Grammy winner, musician, singer, songwriter, and record producer. He's released ten studio albums as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, three solo albums, two albums with Mud Crutch, and two albums as a part of the supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. Petty recorded a number of hit singles with the Heartbreakers and as a solo artist. His music has been classified as rock and roll, heartland rock, and even stoner rock. Petty has become popular among many younger generations, at least two. I think he's working on a third. Throughout his career, he sold more than 80 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling music artists of all time. In 2002, Petty was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was born and raised in Gainesville, that's Florida, and attended Gainesville High School. His interest in rock and roll began at the age of 10 when he met Elvis Presley. In the summer of 61, his uncle was working on the set of Presley's film Follow That Dream and invited Petty to come down and watch the shoot. Here's Tom Petty describing that day. I got up around the age of 10. I got really interested in rock and roll records, mainly Elvis Presley records. I, I thought Elvis was really cool. So my aunt pulls up one day and says, man, you're going to be really happy. Your uncle's working with Elvis Presley. I'm going to take you down to the set, and maybe we'll get to meet Elvis. You know, things like that don't happen. <laughs> and, and so she took me, and uh, it was about 30 miles away in Ocala, Florida, and we got to go back where the dressing room trailers were. We were there when he arrived in this fleet of white Cadillacs, all white, I remember. And, you know, guys were all jumping out, and all of them had mohair suits and pompadours, and I'd say, well, is that one Elvis, you know? And, no, that's not him, is that? And then suddenly you just go, oh, wow, that's Elvis. <laughs> you know, there was really no mistaking who Elvis was. <laughs> And, and it was all it took, you know, and, and uh, that had a huge impression on me, and I came home and began to collect records. Here, Petty goes on to talk about the image he had of Elvis being the American dream. Elvis was like, uh, before the Beatles, you know, my picture of Elvis was, was the American dream. I mean, this was a kid from the South who had broken all the rules, you know, had become his own man and sort of looked like he did whatever he wanted, whether adults liked it or not. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the picture I had. And But that didn't look like something you could be to me, you know. 
you mean, to be Elvis, you know, no one's ever pulled that off. I mean, you'd have to be Elvis. You'd have to look like that for one thing, and you'd have to, you know, orchestras would have to come out of the shrubbery and on, appear on the beach. You know, like that just doesn't happen. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to throw it to again, Sullivan. I think I can say it now, Sullivan. Oh, all right, and uh, five fifteen, right? All right, let's do it. Petty said that he knew he wanted to be in a band the moment he saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. The Beatles, you know, that looked like something that could be done to me. Like, these people look like they're self-contained. They're making music that they wrote themselves. The music's all there on the stage. They're playing it. And they look like they're really good friends and they're having a lot of fun. And I'll bet they're not worried about Brad either, you know. And, of course, they were so absolutely genius, you know. Like, they were so good even in 64 that it seemed like really hard to ever reach that kind of uh, musicianship. Petty took an interest in the Rolling Stones. Then you saw the Stones come on there not much long after that, and you went, that I could do. Hmm. You know, I can do that. They were grittier, you know. It was it was raw. It was they were playing blues in this really energetic kind of raw way, but it wasn't complicated. There wasn't a lot of beautiful harmony involved. Mm. This was our view of it was sort of my punk music. It was like that can be done, you know? And apparently, you know, tens of thousands of American musicians had the same thought at the same time. <laughs> you know, you won't meet anyone my age that's playing that didn't have that thought at that time. Petty looks back on those early years as a performer trying to make a living as a musician and how things have changed over time. You literally would hear this music coming out of garages as you drove around town. You know, this little town in Gainesville, we must have had 50, 60 bands. I mean, there were so many bands and so many places to play. It was a great time, you know. Now, if you're a band, you, it's really tough to find places to work or places to play. It's changed so much, you know. I, re I remember when we were a working band, like when Mud Crutch was just a working band, like we, we had to work all the time in order to eat, you know. And disco suddenly changed over to cats that just played records, and the bands were out of work. And we were so insulted, like, what? You mean... We've been fired for a guy that plays records. But that was the first wake-up call, you know, to, wow, there's a lot of gigs being taken away. If you want to keep working, you're going to have to get better and better and better. So go figure. The advent of disco drove Tom Petty to write better and get better. And that's what we learn over and over again, that folks who really make it, they persevere and they handle adversity brilliantly. They carry on. Shortly after embracing his musical aspirations, Petty started a band known as The Epics. Later, it evolved into Mud Crutch. Although the band was popular in Gainesville, their recordings went unnoticed by a mainstream audience. And then came, of course, the Heartbreakers and that great sound. And we know that. But here's what gets interesting. In 1988, Petty joins George Harrison's group, The Traveling Wilburys. 
which also included Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynne. The band's first song, Handle With Care, was intended as a B-side of one of Harrison's singles, but was judged too good for that purpose, and the group decided to record a full album, Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1. In 1989, Petty released Full Moon Fever, which featured hits I Won't Back Down, Free Fallen, and Running Down a Dream. It was nominally his first solo album. Here, Tom Petty explains why he had a hard time releasing his hit, Won't Back Down. I immediately found second thoughts about that song because it was there was just nothing to hide behind in it. It was there's no metaphor, there's 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 nothing in it but just very straightforward stuff. But that's the way it came out and there was something about it that sounded truthful to me. If you can get something in the studio that sounds kinda a little timeless and it sounds honest and you believe the singer, then you're, you're, you're doing something. You're doing something. And that's Tom Petty, and we're celebrating his life. Born today in 1950. My goodness, timeless and honest. Sounds like Tom Petty's music. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our half hour on the life of Tom Petty, born on this day in history in 1950. Here's Tom Petty describing where his lyrics come from. It just comes out of the air. Uh, It's kind of a dangerous business looking really deeply into what, you know, the germ that creates songs. I mean, I, I don't like to stare at that light very long, you know. I, I get a little superstitious about it, but there's some kind of actual magic going on there, and I feel like for some reason I was born with some kind of conduit to this, you know, this energy force or whatever it is, and I can have that happen through me if I really try to do it, or sometimes when I'm not, when I'm just standing somewhere, or, you know, at the funniest times, uh, something can come into your head and you think, that's a good line, you know, that's a good couple of lines. And then it's just trial and error, like, you know, it can be really frustrating if, say, you have a great chorus but you don't know what should come in front of that chorus. Sometimes the song can come so fast that you're, you're suspicious of where it came from. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to slug it out. Sometimes you've got to slug it out. Continuing this discussion on his songwriting process, Petty goes into detail on the ideal mood for songwriting. You don't really write a song when you're feeling horrible. It's the last thing you want to do. I mean, if I feel horrible, the last thing I'm going to do is look for a guitar to write a song. Or it's cathartic when you're happy again. Maybe, maybe you can remember that and draw on it. But is it, you know, does it solve any problems? I don't think so. But I think 
you know, you can moan on about your problems with songs, yeah, but I, I'm not one to write when I'm bummed out. I, I sort of go into a, a coma. <laughs> I, I don't really get go for the music then. Petty says he tries to create a character in his songs, and then he becomes an actor to perform as that character. You know, if you're going to do a song, you, you write the song and try to create a character, usually. And when you're going to sing the song, there's a bit of acting involved where you've, you've got to become that character. And you've got to really believe, just like an actor, really, you've got to really believe that you're that person. And the material will dictate the way you sing it. You know, it does to me. Hmm. And uh, so I think it was really the songs where that seemed what was called for at the time, was, was to use that voice. Petty was asked if he ever knew he had a hit song while he was writing it. For Petty, Free Fallen was one of the few. There's been very few times where I set out to write a single. I, I knew that I really liked those songs. Uh, like Free Falling, I, I knew that was a good one because I played it all night when I went home. I just kept, you know, I rarely play myself, and I went home and I just kept playing that track. The rough mix, I'd take it home from the studio, and I thought, man, this is good, you know, but I still didn't know that it was a hit song until much later when it actually was, but I knew I liked it. And now on to the recording process. Petty talks about how a song goes from being a concept to a reality with the rest of the band. We have this process of come in and play it to them on the guitar, and they'll kind of be in a circle and watch, and I don't think they're really judging it yet. They're just trying to learn it. And once they've learned all the changes, we'll have a run-through, then... If we made it all the way to the end, we'll go into the control room and listen right away. And there'll be a discussion like, okay, well, that's good, but that's not. Ben Ma, that's a good bit there, but don't do this here. You know, the bass line is great, but it should change here. What are we going to do for an ending? It needs an ending. But how about da 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 da? Is the tempo good? No, I think it could be faster. Okay, all those changes in our head, and we go out, we play it a couple more times, we come right back, and it just goes on and on all day like that. Continuing the topic of the recording process, he goes through to create a song with the Heartbreakers. Petty explains why they've never had a rehearsal for an album and why it was tremendously fun. We've never rehearsed for a record We've always created it on the floor. I mean, we come in with this. I like to have the song done when I come in. We were put in that situation early on at Shelter Records by Danny Cordell, who was, and God bless him, he's passed on now, but he he just put us in the studio. Like, Shelter owned its studios. So they were just, he just put us in there and leave us, you know, and then check in on us. But he'd say, you know, you need to learn that Making a record and performing live are not necessarily related that much. You know, the the record is is a performance, but there's no one there. You know, you're you're creating uh, 
you know, just like you would an oil painting, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, you're adding color, you do your sketch, and the, there's a lot that goes on. So bit by bit, you learn how to make these noises attractive or interesting, and that's tremendous fun. Yeah, and it's tremendous fun when you're doing it with Stan Lynch in the kit, and you got Ben Montench on keyboards, and you got Mike Campbell leading your your charge with the hooks. It makes it a lot more fun. Petty explains why he and his band don't need 100 takes to get a song recorded properly. It depends on how much you believe in the song. If, if you've got this, you know, we try not to work on anything we don't really believe in, and that's going to become apparent within a few takes, whether the song is good or not. Fortunately, as we've gotten older, we've gotten better at you know, just the craft of recording. And making a record isn't nearly that... It's not hard, you know, I know I can do that. It's coming up with a song that is still the great challenge. Because without it, without the actual song, there's doesn't matter what you do in the recording studio, it's not going to work. And in the end, it's about the writing. Recording great music isn't always easy, especially when it's a contractual obligation. Here, Petty talks about how one song in particular was a challenge to record for that very reason. While we were recording the album uh, Wildflowers, we had changed labels to Warner Brothers from Universal, and the old label was going to release a greatest hits album, which I wasn't really keen on, but it was a contractual obligation. And part of this obligation was that I had to deliver a new song to go along with this album. It irked me no end that I had to do this, you know, because I, I was trying to write for Wildflowers. I didn't want to turn around and give something away. And I kind of hate it when you get those greatest hits albums and there's, there's all hits and then, what's that, you know, at the end? There's like, well, what's that on there for, you know? It's, I hate that. Why is there a live track all of a sudden? Like, I don't get it. There is no bonus track. It's the end of your record, man. There is no bonus, you know? I don't don't buy that. I don't want it on my record unless it's supposed to be there. This is why people find me difficult sometimes, but it makes perfect sense to me. Right. So me and Rick Rubin sit down to talk about this, and he said, you know, I heard you playing a thing um, with the Heartbreakers, you know, uh, one day when they were over at Mike's, and you should finish that, and we'll get them together and go in and, and cut it, and that'll be that. And that song turned out to be Mary Jane's Last Dance. And as it turns out, it was one of their most popular songs ever recorded. Long discussion about whether that was a single or not. You know, we really didn't know. You know, there, there was a lot of scratching our heads and wondering about, well, maybe we should do another one, whatever, you know, and... In the end of the day, it was, you know, one of our biggest songs. But it was wouldn't have been done if it just if we hadn't absolutely had to make a record to fill out this album. Petty concludes things by saying that while chasing fame might work for some, he's a little more old school than that. There's a lot of people that are in so much of a hurry to be, I guess, to be famous. 
or that they don't want to take the time to learn to play and do all that. They'd rather just knock it down off a computer and maybe get on a game show and get famous, you know. But it's there's you know, and that's fine if that's what you want to do. We're not, we're more old school than that. We 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 like creating the sounds. Crazy idea, and boy, have they created sounds. As a solo artist with the Heartbreakers, we start and end on the same song. My little girl's favorite, Reagan's favorite. This goes out to you, sweetheart. Tom Petty, born on this day in history in 1950. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 